Topic 2, Fourth Paper of 20th Century Negro Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phyllis Vincelli. 20th Century Negro Literature, Topic 2, Fourth Paper by Bishop J. W. Hood, D.D., L.L.D. The subject of this sketch was born in Kennett Township, Chester County, Pennsylvania, May 30th, 1831. His father's house, being near the line between freedom and slavery, was a station of the Underground Railroad. Hence, the boy was very early impressed with the evils of slavery and imbibed an intense hatred toward that institution and an intense love for his afflicted race. This sentiment has been a great factor in shaping his conduct through life. His moral and religious convictions were fixed in early life. He was sensible of a call to the ministry, but hesitated a long time because he felt a lack of necessary qualification. He was licensed to preach in 1856, ordained a deacon in 1860, elder in 1862, and bishop in 1872. He entered upon a course of studies soon after he was licensed and has been a hard student ever since. His first appointment was to a mission in Nova Scotia. In December 1861, he was appointed to missionary work in the South. Following the army, he reached New Bern, North Carolina, January 20, 1864. As a traveling minister, he always had encouraging success, especially in North Carolina, in which state his denomination has a larger following than in any other. Two of its most important institutions are located there, namely the Publication House at Charlotte and Livingstone College at Salisbury. Bishop Hood is one of the founders of the college and has been president of the Board of Trustees during its entire history. He has been married three times and has six living children, all of whom have been mainly educated at this institution. The bishop is an untiring worker and has traveled as much as 20,000 miles a year. He once preached 45 sermons in 31 days, driving from 5 to 25 miles a day. He is a natural presiding officer and governs his conferences with an ease and quietness that is astonishing. He is an author. His first work was a book of 25 sermons, the second a pamphlet, Know, Do, and Be Happy, the third a history of the AME Zion Church, 625 pages, the fourth a pamphlet, The True Church, The Real Sacrifice, The Genuine Membership. His fifth and most important is The Plan of the Apocalypse. He has in manuscript a work on the millennium, also the material for a second book of sermons, and is now writing an autobiography. 
Bishop Haygood of the M.E. Church South, who wrote the introduction to the Book of Sermons, says, Bishop Hood has traveled the continent to and fro. His ability, his eloquence, his zeal and usefulness have commanded the respect and confidence of the best people of both races. As one of the members of the ecumenical conference that met in London in 1881, Bishop Hood made a lasting impression. These sermons speak for themselves. Their naturalness, their clearness, their force, and their general soundness of doctrine and wholesomeness of sentiment commend them to sensible and pious people. I have found them as useful as interesting. Those who still question whether the Negro in this country is capable of education and uplifting will modify their opinions when they read these sermons, or else will conclude that their author is a very striking exception to what they assume to be a general rule. The subject of this article is one upon which much thought has been spent, and yet, excepting the color of the skin and the texture of the hair, the Negro has more the appearance of the white American than any other race. A cultured colored woman with gloves on her hands and a veil on her face is hard to distinguish from a cultured white woman a little way off. And the same is true of men when the complexion is not seen. We shall take the position that the inherent possibility of the Negro is equal to that of any race. Notwithstanding his environments are against him, yet he has the inherent power to break through them, and will break through them and reach the highest plane of Christian civilization. This is indicated by the progress he has made in the few years in which he has had any chance for development as an American citizen. Almost everything has been against him. Every possible effort has been employed by his enemies to keep him down. But in spite of all, he rises. Like Israel of old, the more he is oppressed, the more he prospers. His possibility is indicated by the stock from which he comes. It is the impression of many that the Negro has no history to which he can point. There could be no greater mistake than this. If it had been in the power of modern historians of the Caucasian race to rob him of his history, it would have been done. But the Holy Bible has stood as an everlasting rock in the black man's defense. God himself has determined that the black man shall not be robbed of his record which he has made during the ages past. The first and most illustrious of earth's historians has left on record statements which set forth the fact beyond reasonable doubt that an ancestor of the Negro race was the first of the earth's great monarchs, and that that race ruled the world for a long period. And the statements of Moses are confirmed by the testimonies of the earliest secular historians whose writings have come down to our time. Ethiopia and Egypt were first among the early monarchies, and these countries were peopled by the descendants of Ham, through Cush and Mizraim. Palestine was peopled by Canaan, 
the younger son of Ham, upon whom the curse was pronounced, and notwithstanding the curse, his posterity ruled that land for hundreds of years. They were in it when the promise of it was made to Abraham, and four hundred years later, when Israel came out of Egypt, they were still in full possession of it. And though the land was promised to Israel, yet two tribes, the Jebusites and Sidonians, resisted the attacks of Israel for more than four hundred years after they entered upon their promised possessions. Neither Joshua nor the judges of Israel could drive them out. Not until David became king were the Jebusites driven out from the stronghold of Zion. Even David failed to drive out the Sidonians. It was from the ancient seat of the Jebusites, Jerusalem, also called Salem, the seat of royalty and power, that Melchizedek, the most illustrious king, priest, and prophet of that race, came forth to bless Abraham, as seen in Genesis 14, verses 18 and 19. There have been many wild notions respecting this personage, for which there is no good reason. Dr. Barnes, a standard author, whose commentaries have been adopted by the Presbyterian Board, takes the position that there can be no question but that Melchizedek was a Canaanite. That the Phoenicians, who were the founders of Carthage, in connection with the original Africans, were the descendants of Canaan, there ought to be no question. But since everything honorable to the Negro race is questioned, we will simply give the testimony of Rollin. He says, The Canaanites are certainly the same people who are called almost always Phoenicians by the Greeks, for which name no reason can be given any more than the oblivion of the true one. Thus it is seen that up to Rollin's time there was no question as to the fact that the Phoenicians were Canaanites. Rollin did not know why this, instead of the true name, was given. Neither do we know. But we may easily conjecture that, since it was the Greeks that gave this name, instead of the true one, it may have been their purpose to hide the fact that the people to whom they were so greatly indebted were the descendants of the accursed son of Ham. This would be, in perfect accord, with the conduct of Caucasian authors now. We also have the testimony of Dr. Barnes that the Phoenicians were descended from the Canaanites. In his notes on Matthew 15:22, of the woman of Canaan who met Jesus on the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, he says, This woman is also called a Greek, a Syro-Phoenician by birth. Mark 7 26. Anciently, the whole land, including Tyre and Sidon, was in the possession of the Canaanites and called Canaan. The Phoenicians were descended from the Canaanites. The country, including Tyre and Sidon, was called Phoenicia or Syro-Phoenicia. That country was taken by the Greeks under Alexander the Great, and these cities, in the time of Christ, were Greek cities. This woman was therefore a Gentile, 
living under the Greek government, and probably speaking that language. She was by birth a Syro-Phoenician, born in that country, and descended therefore from the ancient Canaanites. On the same text, Dr. Abbott says, The term Canaan was the older title of the country, and the inhabitants were successively termed Canaanites and Phoenicians, as the inhabitants of England were successively called Britons or Englishmen. Of Carthage, we may remark that through all the hundreds of years of its existence as an independent government, it remained a republic. Rollin, speaking of the government, says, The government of Carthage was founded upon principles of most consummate wisdom, and it is with reason that Aristotle ranks this republic in the number of those that were held in the greatest esteem by the ancients, and which were fit to serve as a model for others. He grounds his opinion on a reflection which does great honor to Carthage, by remarking that from the foundation to his time, that is, upward of five hundred years, no considerable sedition had disturbed the peace, nor any tyrant oppressed the liberty of the state. Indeed, mixed governments, such as that of Carthage, where the power was divided betwixt the nobles and the people, are subject to the inconveniences either of degenerating into an abuse of liberty by the seditions of the populace, as frequently happened in Athens, and in all the Grecian republics, or in the oppression of the public liberty by the tyranny of the nobles, as in Athens, Syracuse, Corinth, Thebes, and Rome itself, under Scylla and Caesar. It is, therefore, giving Carthage the highest praise to observe that it had found out the art by the wisdom of its laws, and the harmony of the different parts of its government, to shun during so long a series of years two rocks that are so dangerous and on which others so often split. It were to be wished that some ancient author had left us an accurate and regular description of the customs and laws of the famous republic. While we agree with Rollin in his lament of the want of a more complete history of that ancient Negro republic, yet if those Caucasians who are wont to arrogate to themselves all the excellencies of the world, and deny that the Negro ever has been great or ever can be, would take time to read what has been written with sufficient care to understand it. They would lose some of their self-conceit and add much to their store of knowledge. That the ancient Egyptians were black, both the holy scriptures and the discoveries of science, as also the most ancient histories most fully attest. But as some profess to have doubts on this point, we shall take some testimony which, we think, no fair-minded man will attempt to dispute. The psalmist calls to memory the wonders which God wrought for his people, and celebrates in song his dealings with Israel and Egypt, and frequently calls Egypt the land of Ham. 
how can this be accounted for if egypt was not peopled by the posterity of ham but he goes further than this he calls their dwellings the tabernacles of ham he smote the firstborn in egypt the chief of their strength in the tabernacles of ham psalm sixty seven verse fifty one israel also came into egypt and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. Psalm 105, verse 23. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They set among them his signs and wonders in the land of Ham. Psalm 105, verse 26 and 27. They forget their God, their Savior, which had done great things in Egypt, wondrous things in the land of ham psalm 16 verses 21 and 22 the man who after reading these passages can doubt that the egyptians to whom israel was in bondage were the descendants of ham is beyond the reach of reason the repetition seems designed to settle this fact beyond question we might add if it were necessary, that the book of Canticles is an allegory based upon Solomon's affection for his beautiful black wife, the daughter of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In the 68th Psalm, we have a prophecy which connects Egypt with Ethiopia as follows. Princes shall come out of Egypt. Ethiopia shall soon stretch forth her hands unto God. Rollin, in speaking of the fact that all callings in Egypt were honorable, gives this as a probable reason, that as they all descended from Ham, their common father, the memory of their still recent origin, occurring to the minds of all in those first ages, established among them a kind of equality, and stamped in their opinion a nobility on every person descended from the common stock again treating of the history of the kings of egypt rollin says the ancient history of egypt comprises two thousand one hundred and fifty eight years and is naturally divided into three periods the first begins with the establishment of the egyptian monarchy by menus or mizraim the son of ham and the year of the world eighteen sixteen on the next page he says of ham he had four children cush mizraim foot and canaan after speaking of the settlements of the other sons he returns to mizraim and says he is allowed to be the same as menus whom all historians declare to be the first king of egypt in speaking of the sons of Ham, Rollin says, Cush settled in Ethiopia, Mizraim in Egypt, which generally is called in scripture after his name, and by that of Ham his father. That ancient Egypt was the seat of the arts and sciences, there can be no doubt. The evidences of this still remain. The cities built by the early kings of Egypt have been the wonder of all succeeding ages. 
Sesostris stands at the head of the list of the great Egyptian warriors. Rollin says, his father, whether by inspiration, caprice, or, as the Egyptians say, by the authority of an oracle, formed the design of making his son a conqueror. The record given by Rollin indicates that Sesostris was among the wisest, as well as among the most powerful monarchs of the earth. Napoleon was a great warrior, but he died in exile, a prisoner of war. Alexander was a great general, but he made a foolish march across a desert country almost to the destruction of his army, for the foolish purpose of worshipping at the shrine, and being called the son of Jupiter Ammon. This so discouraged his forces that he never accomplished the object of his ambition. Sesostris made no such blunders in his campaigns. He went forth conquering until he met a providential interposition. His climax of wisdom was displayed in his turning back when he discovered that not merely mortal beings, but the great immortal, opposed his further conquest. He returned to his own country to enjoy in peace and prosperity the fruits of his unparalleled victories. His conduct toward those cities, which resisted in attacks most stubbornly, was in striking contrast to that of Alexander. As Alexander advanced to invade Egypt, he found at Gaza a garrison so strong that he was obliged to besiege it. It held out a long time, during which he received two wounds. This provoked him to such a degree that when he had captured the place, he treated the soldiers and inhabitants most cruelly. Sesostris, on the other hand, was pleased with those who defended their positions most bravely. The degree of resistance which he had to overcome was denoted by him in hieroglyphical figures on monuments. The more stubborn the resistance, the greater the achievement and the more worthy the people to become his subjects. If the descendants of the accursed son of Ham could establish and maintain for five hundred years a republic which was never disturbed by sedition nor tyranny, and enjoyed a civilization in some respects better than the boasted American civilization, there is no reason why any other branch of Ham's family may not attain to the highest and best civilization. Our opinion is that within 250 years the American Negro will reach that Christian civilization taught by the Son of God to a degree equal to any race on the face of the globe. He has in him the elements for such a civilization to a degree not possessed by some other races, but the limit allowed this article has been reached. End of Topic 2, Fourth Paper